Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I don't believe in paradise, you know, or heaven, um, but I do believe in beauty and beauty re- requires um, a dark underbelly for it to be really beautiful to me. This is Death, Sex, and Money. You were already dead. You didn't have a pulse. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Grandma said I could use this money to buy whatever I want. And need to talk about more. At 26, my academic career was over. I had never kissed a boy. And I was still sleeping with mom. I'm Anna Sale. My conversation with John Cameron Mitchell started with him cleaning out his freezer. Let me just take this ice out because I actually... He took out two large packs of ice for the leg he injured on stage in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the off-Broadway musical turned movie turned Broadway revival that he created and is starring in now. We were sitting on the couch in his living room, which is also his kitchen. It's a small apartment. So I'd asked him to turn off his refrigerator for the quiet. Phone's off. Phone's off. Since we're here... Can you describe the apartment that we're sitting in? Um, It's encrusted in the 90s when I got it. He moved in in 1993 when he was just turning 30. It's rent-stabilized. You have to uh, keep things a certain way or your rent changes. And the way he's kept it, it's a style I'll call homey punk rock. On the walls are album covers. Sex Pistols. Signed. Signed by Johnny Rotten, Diana Ross Live, The Homosexuals, which is a post-punk band. There are also movie posters. An action movie I was in in the 80s called Band of the Hand. Above the couch, there's a big framed photograph. That's my mom and dad in their courting days. They're smiling, with arms wrapped around each other, dancing the Charleston. John Cameron Mitchell's the oldest of their boys. His brothers have kids. The kids were just here this weekend with my mom. His mother, Joan Cameron Mitchell, is Scottish. Her family crest hangs behind her son's television. His father was from Atlanta and moved the family around with his army career. His last post was in West Germany, where he was commander of U.S. forces in Berlin just before the wall fell. John Cameron Mitchell's most famous character, Hedwig, is from East Germany. She has this platinum Farrah Fawcett hair, but was born male and comes to America after a botched sex change operation. That's the angry inch. 
He developed the character with his friend composer Stephen Trask at Squeezebox, which was this metal punk drag party held regularly at a New York club in the mid-90s. Stephen and I really were aware of using all the elements of things that we liked and tried to ram them into this character. In the 20 years since, he's directed the film's Rabbit Hole and Short Bus and acted, most recently in Girls. But he's Hedwig again, this time on Broadway. Neil Patrick Harris opened the revival, and it won four Tonys. John Cameron Mitchell took over the role last winter at 51 years old, and he injured himself on stage. But the show has gone on. I had an accident because I was doing Neil Patrick Harris's superhuman choreography and took a, a wrong move and ripped a meniscus. So had an operation, took a week off, and back in a knee brace, which makes the show kind of raw and, and more spontaneous despite the lack of movement. I was just talking to someone about Beckett's play Endgame, which is someone in a wheelchair who's blind ordering someone around, you know, it's one of my favorite plays, so weirdly, it's become more like that. It's much better now. I can't do certain things, but I keep the brace on because I actually like the show better with it. Huh. Also, I don't have to do as much dancing. Which is <laughs> you get to sit with your leg propped up on a crate. Yeah. What was it like putting the fabulous blonde wig and full makeup and full costume on for the first time since? Well, I'm kind of an average-looking person, but weirdly, when I put drag on, I, I think I'm cuter. It was weird how it affected people, because I was rehearsing, you know, with just a fake wig and no makeup for, you know, most of the time, and then had a couple shows with makeup, a couple of rehearsals, and it really kicked in, I think, for a lot of people, not as much for me, because I'm not looking at myself, but there was like, oh, there she is. Did you see that you had aged in a way that you hadn't noticed um, no. I, I think I actually looked a bit younger in drag, weirdly. I mean, I'm aware of my having aged, for sure. And I always looked younger than I am. So people always treated me younger, which I think made me have to be more assertive sometimes. And maybe being gay, you know, there was some kind of, like, understanding that that was somehow weaker or, like, second class. So... That also made me more active in asking for what I wanted and stating who I was. Can you give me an example of that? It sounds like you're describing a well, certain... Well, I, I remember being in I mean, like that action movie on the wall. You know, it was de rigueur to have, you know, kind of homophobic comments among the crew or whatever in the 80s. And, you know, it was a very difficult time to be gay with AIDS and, and uh, general homophobia of all kinds. As an actor, I was told that I, for a career, I should remain uh, anonymous about my sexual orientation the way a woman is told they shouldn't talk about their age. But I always, I never liked being told what to do. So on, on a set, if I would do that movie or a MacGyver or whatever thing, I would kind of like drop a comment about someone I was going out with and just to sort of clear the air of homophobic comments. And then most people were a little bit, Surprise, because that wasn't common, but uh, it was just a way of, you know, someone putting an aromatherapy in the room, and it would just kind of make it, would calm that stuff down, and whoever was tense, I didn't really want to deal with anyway. I love that you think of it as aromatherapy and not as a sort of, you know, challenge to, the, you think of it as cleansing. Yeah, I mean, I think 
there's a certain calm that can come into a room when someone just sort of is like, oh, I'm having a horrible day. When someone just sort of says what is, it kind of relaxes everybody. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's not a big deal. If he's gay, it's not a big deal. And maybe it's an example for other people who have other things that they might be ashamed of that they really shouldn't be. You know, just like, oh, I've been, I've been depressed lately. And it's like kind of saying it diffuses it of, of uh, negativity. Mm-hmm. Now I'm picturing the MacGyver set like smelling like lavender. <laughs> <laughs> MacGyver. I don't have much memory of MacGyver. I did a lot of TV in, in the 90s, alternating with, with interesting theater. How did you learn how to manage your money during that time? It was just having, you know, spending it when you had it and not not spending when you didn't have it and not buying anything on credit. Really? Yeah. Like nothing? No. And, you know, I mean, I used credit card, but I'd pay it off right away, so I'd never pay interest because I just never knew when I'd have it. Mm-hmm. I never did things for money. I wasn't dumb. Um, I had low rent. And I always found that if I did good work, then enough money came along. You've mentioned your low rent a few times. Yeah. How much is your rent? Well, it's higher than anyone else in the country would like, but it's about 1800 for a one-bedroom in the West Village, which is the most desirable spot for most people, certainly single people. There's a lot more young people in the building than there has been in the past. I don't know if it's a trust fund situation or, you know, just kind of young financial people. So there's been a little bit, you know, dorm room party-ish here, which is kind of unusual. Oh, that's interesting. I hate to have to be the guy who's like, you guys, please, it's 4 a.m. Oh, my God, you are on girls. Oh, God, here we go. Um, how old were you when you moved to New York City? Well, I first moved in 85 uh, to do Big River on Broadway, and I was 21, but then got that action movie and moved to Al- uh, California in 80, later in the year, and uh, came back in 90, you know, so I was, whatever, 26, 25. So when you think about the AIDS crisis in New York City, does it feel like something you lived through? Yeah, I mean, I was a bit younger, um... I was the first generation of people who kind of came out into it. Um, so it was always there. I, I would never want to go back to that time, but there was a a strange um, vitality and, and you knew who people, what they were worth for how they reacted to that, you know. What people were worth. That's Yeah, it taught you what you were worth, you know, as a person, you know, what you could handle, what you could give. And also what those people's parents were worth. You know, some of them swooped in and having disowned their kids, swooped in and grabbed their apartments and pushed the lovers out. And it was a very cruel time. You said your mom just visited last weekend? Yeah. What's your relationship with her like now? It's better than it's ever been. You know, we just laugh a lot. She gave me jokes that were in Hedvig. Tell me one. Well, she gave me the joke uh, where Hedwig puts on a fur coat and someone says, what poor unfortunate creature had to die for you to wear that? And Hedwig says, my Aunt Trudy. 
That was from your mom. That's from my mom, <laughs> which came from her mom. She gave me, they, both my parents were very funny. Mom would just be, you know, I'd be like, can I borrow the car? She's like, I never saw a banana till I was 12. <laughs> and you want the car? You know, when I was your age, I was being bombed. And you want the car, okay. You know, she was a very uh, demanding woman in terms of standards, and, you know, she was very religious and, and remains that way, but it's become much more tender and loving. And mm. she grew up in a hard time, in the, you know, during the war, lost her father young, had to take care of the kids. You know, my being gay was kind of a challenge, and religiously and but then mortality truly does clear away the brush if there's love my dad passed away a couple of years ago and, and he had alzheimer's and both my father and mother our relationships got better and better as we understood that there was less time hmm. you know and health crises and such it does get better for for families when there's issues like that that are just irrelevant to, to love. John Cameron Mitchell's father died in 2013 in Colorado Springs. Eight years earlier, in the Denver Post, he talked about being a devout Catholic whose son came out. It was difficult then, and it's still difficult. He added, the most important thing is that we love him, and we do not ever want to become alienated from him. Coming up, what John Cameron Mitchell learned from his ex-boyfriend, Jack Steed. He was half Jewish. Jewish humor is always in me, too. I mean, there's a line in the Hedwig sequel that Jews are like gays, but related. <laughs> you know, because there's ideas of appearances, there's ideas of hypocrisy, there's ideas of passing, and there's ideas of exaggeration as a uh, non-dominant subculture. I've heard from a lot of you after our episode with Mark and Julia Lukacs about living with her bipolar condition. Many of you relate. Sarah in St. Paul has two kids with her bipolar husband. Being in this situation, I am so hungry for stories like these while at the same time understanding all too well why they are rarely told, she wrote us. My husband is going to be applying for jobs in a new field soon, and we both know being public about his diagnosis could hurt his chances. I am in awe of Julia and Mark's courage in light of risks like that. So again, thank you, Mark and Julia. We're also busy here getting ready for our first live show in Brooklyn. I'll talk on stage with poet Tracy K. Smith, comedian W. Kamal Bell and his wife Melissa Hudson Bell, and fashion writer Simon Doonan and home decor designer Jonathan Adler. Luscious Jackson is our house band for the night. It is going to be fun. The show is Friday, May 8th at BAM in Brooklyn. Ticket information is on our website at deathsexmoney.org. I want to tell you about another podcast to check out, The Longest, Shortest Time from WNYC. It's about the surprising struggles in parenthood, but it's worth listening to even if you don't have kids. Start with the episode featuring two high schoolers caring for robotic babies. 
I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's a pretty interesting twist at the end. Get The Longest Shortest Time wherever you get your podcast or listen on the WNYC app. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. In the Broadway playbill for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, John Cameron Mitchell calls his ex-boyfriend Jack Steeb the best man he ever knew. Hedwig composer Stephen Trask introduced them in 1994. Stephen was living with him, and he thought that when we met, something was going to happen. And it did. And uh, (laughs) Jack was a wonderful, wonderful friend and boyfriend, and he had his own demons with addiction, and but he taught me so much about what it was to truly be cool, you know, he, huh. which was not caring to be cool. It was just knowing and feeling what was good. He was kind of like an old man in a young man's body. You know, he kind of wanted to skip the middle part and just he'd like to just hang out with old guys in the bars and and just laugh. And he would turn me on to old man actors and terrible movies and he's like, just laugh and... I was like, I could grow old with this guy, you know. I already have. But he had a, a drinking problem, and it was deep-seated and early, you know, when I met him. And But we, we thought we could, you know, fight it together, and I didn't know much about it, you know. So it was a rough ride, but it was so valuable. And, and uh, he was very much a, a part of the creation of Hedvig, uh, terms of his sensibility you know some songs were written for him and which he just made me laugh long grift specifically was about uh steven wrote for him uh when he was in rehab and we sang it for him outside his rehab you know that i loved you hun and i didn't want to cracked me up. I mean, he defended me. I was kind of a hothead. I was, I'd be the kind of person that would kick, you know, cabs that would cut me off on the street. Yeah, I was, I mean, I think think AIDS and radicalized me. I I wasn't an activist in that way, you know, going to meetings, but I was angry. And uh, I remember the last time I kicked a car that tried to cut me off, the guy got out and started beating me up and Jack tried to defend me and he got clocked and he was like after the guy the guy was he just felt bad that he had to beat me up <laughs> you know he's like don't do that I'm gonna have to beat you up now um and Jack said don't ever ever do that again and I didn't <laughs> you know it took him getting punched in the head I, I was able to bob and weave enough to not get hit in the head <laughs> How long were you and Jack together in, in, in a relationship? Six years. Six years. Mm-hmm. And why did it end? Well, it was just, it was a lot of stress with, with the drinking. But I was also, the thing is when you're with a person who has addictions issue, you're as much of the part, of the, can be as much part of the problem as, as the person who's the 
seems to be the obvious troubled one because you not necessarily enabling but you're part of a dynamic I didn't have it in my family but I, I realized I was good at taking care of and wanting to save the problem with it was also that I never had to face my own problems that were very deep-seated too about intimacy and trust because his problems were always seemed bigger um, so it was safer to be with someone who had concrete issues, but he was so much more sane, or not sane, but kind of clear. He loved me, you know. He loved me more than anyone had, and it was that was an incredible skill, you know, which I wasn't able to do, you know, the same way. So there was a, and hadn't, you know, and still haven't quite in the way that I want to. So there's a learning curve that comes, and he was so much more together than I was in many ways. It's just this one way, which uh, ultimately it took him, you know, it took his life, and we were not together then. How did you find out that he had died? His mom told me. Yeah, I was on this couch, actually. And my two buddies came to uh, shore me up and just be here on this couch for a while to just, you know, get through the initial shock. Um... So that all informs the new Hedvig. But there's also a lot more fun, you know, and I always think, would he have liked this line, this new line? And Tell me about how it feels more fun, but there is this history and this sadness that's part of yeah, this I mean, experience. Yeah, I, th- I think things are dishonest if they're not aware of sadness. You know, humor without sadness underneath it feels cheap and just aggressive that's why Richard Pryor was so brilliant you know any of the the people that you think of as great performers have that other side you know the Judy Garland or the or the Tina Turner or the it may not be evident in people like David Bowie or but it's underneath there you know Mm -hmm. it's underneath there there's this under the pose is a is a deep awareness of, of death and sex and, I don't know, money necessarily, but there's a sense of you have to, because that's the purpose of of the humor, is to deal with those things ultimately. Edvig is, you know, I get to write the person that to me is the ultimate kind of performer who's working in different realms that I like, stand-up, comedy, drag, punk rock, performance art, all in one. With a basis that came from Plato's symposium of, of the origin of love, you know, we're cut in half by the gods and we're always seeking our other half, which is sad. It's a sad view of love as I'm incomplete and you will fix me. Yeah. How's your love life now? You know, I'm kind of married to Hedvig now, so it's like not really. In the last couple of years, it's like it's not a priority, you know, I meet nice people, but I'm much pickier. You know, sex drive is lower. What are you picky about? 
Well, you know, I've met a lot of kinds of people, so, you know, the thing that initiates excitement sometimes you realize is maybe part of a pattern you don't want to repeat. We all know the person who keeps going out with that same kind of person. Uh-huh. So, you know, you, and that can not always work, you know. So it has to be someone extremely, you know, firing on, on, on more than one cylinder. On love, you described it as a skill that you're still working on? Love, yes. It totally is. You know, sex was a skill, you know. It intersected with love at times, but, you know, big mistake people make is equating them. And I always thought when I was having a lot of sex in, in the 80s and 90s that a one-night stand was like, could be like a poem, whereas a relationship was an incredibly long, you know, incredibly long novel. No. <laughs> A series, a series of books, you know, in a, in a uh, continuing story, and that was incredibly satisfying, too, or could be. But to denigrate one or the other was too simple. And if was there a way to have both? I don't know, you know. John Cameron Mitchell. He's on Broadway as Hedwig through April 26th. Darren Chris from Glee takes over after that. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botine, James Ramsey, Caitlin Pierce, Zachary Mack, and Bill Moss. Thanks to listener Grant Sprentz, who emailed that he'd like to hear John Cameron Mitchell on the show. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter, at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. I left John Cameron Mitchell's apartment in plenty of time for that evening's curtain. Hedwig's ruby red lips and sparkling blue eyes take care to put on and to get off. I love seeing the flickers of glitter while we talk. The light yes, catches it. Glitter doesn't go away. It's like plutonium. <laughs> it's exactly like plutonium. Yeah, it's got a half-life. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take a listen to The Longest, Shortest Time, WNYC's podcast that covers lots of things we don't talk about enough from a parenting perspective. Get The Longest, Shortest Time wherever you get your podcast or listen on the WNYC app.